The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now let's take our Bibles, if you would, and we'll open them to Exodus chapter 25. And this afternoon, I want to give you the last message on the golden candlestick, the lampstand. And we've been through five sermons on this subject. And uh, I wouldn't have thought when I began that we would be able to spend this much time. But I think it's appropriate because of the symbolism, the value of light to both the physical and spiritual worlds without light life is impossible so that light and life are nearly synonymous. Uh, in the physical world, there are creatures of the dark. I remember many years ago when I was a child, uh, we took m- many trips to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And when you descended into the deepest recesses of the cave, the park rangers were always careful to point out the cave crickets that have no eyes. These crickets were far back in the cave where there was no light that penetrated. Uh, They never emerged into the light of day, so they didn't have any need for eyes. And so in one sense you would say these are creatures that have life without light. But further investigation reveals that even a blind cricket is dependent upon light because he receives his nourishment from uh, water that runs through the cave, surface drainage that comes in, and in that water there is algae that's dependent upon sunlight to grow, and then there are other plants and so forth that wash into the cave, and that's what that cricket feeds on. So none, in even in the lowest forms, exist without light, and in the deepest parts of the ocean where light never penetrates, you have uh, fish and other types of sea creatures that depend on the dead animals and so forth that drift down from above and that's where they get their they get their nourishment so even from the lowest to the very highest order of human life life is not possible without light we breathe air because plants convert carbon dioxide into into oxygen and then it's attested that if you take a person out of the light you put him in isolation you put him in darkness and that can drive a person mad And so understanding this essential nature of light makes us aware that the highest expression of God that we have to the human senses is light. And the Bible says that God is light. And we might not think too much of that expression until we examine how critical that light is to the existence of this world. So in the tabernacle where there is a visible manifestation of God in pictures of Christ, we see God in light. There is God in the light of the Shekinah. We'll come to that a little bit later on. And then also the light in the only source, uh, the only source of light for the work of the priest in the golden candlestick, we have to have light and that picture is God. Now I want to show you a picture of the candlestick once again and then we'll read one verse of scripture here that is the instruction to make this golden lampstand. Exodus 25 verse 31, and thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made, his shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops and his flowers shall be of the same. The candlestick, the lampstand, is a picture of illumination. 
Light is illumination. In this case, the light is the illumination of Jesus Christ as he's seen in the many articles that are on the interior of the tabernacle. The light shines on those gold-covered boards that represent the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. The light shines on the table of showbread that's just across the way where Christ is seen as the sustainer of our lives. And that light shines on the altar of incense where we see a picture of Christ's intercession for us. And then the light shines on the veil that's there that divides the holy place from the holiest of holies and that veil is a representation of the vicarious suffering and death of Christ as it's torn in two when Christ died on the cross. And then that light also shines on the ceiling to see the cherubim that are sewn into it as well as those cherubim that are on the veil and Uh, Those cherubim had the four faces that show Christ, his humanity, his obedience, his sovereignty, and his omniscience. So light lightens up the interior of the tabernacle where all these wonderful articles that picture Christ are seen. Now in these lessons we, we have explored three areas of illumination. We've considered the gospel, which in the scriptures is referred to as the glorious light of the gospel. It's the light of salvation in Christ depicted by a singular light source that teaches there is only one way to God. It's the gospel of Christ that shines into hearts that are darkened by depravity and the death of sin. Then next we talked about the illuminating church. The church is unified in Christ. We are Christ's body. And we are the only ones that are responsible to preach the gospel of Christ. And so the church is often referred to as a lighthouse. The light of the gospel comes through the church where we see Christ in his work. And then we discussed how every Christian should be a member of the Lord's church. That there is no expectation in scripture that any born again believer should live apart from the church. The world has no light but the church. Because Christians that get separated from the church never reach their full potential of their work for Christ and we can't because the Bible teaches that missions are under the direction of the church the great commission itself was given to the church and then the Bible says that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth And so the church illuminates the world by being that stationary point of life that is grounded in truth. And where there is no truth, there is no salvation. Where there is no church to uphold truth, then truth succumbs to individual interpretation. It succumbs to preferences of interpretation. And very soon truth is no longer truth. And then our third point was the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit's work to reveal Christ. And so thus in the tabernacle also there's this vivid representation of the Holy Spirit and the fuel for the lamps. That is the oil. And throughout the scriptures oil is used to represent the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit's work to illuminate himself. But he was sent to reveal Christ by regenerating hearts and bringing them to repentance and faith. And you just have to ask, repentance and faith. So the Holy Spirit points to Christ because Christ's work is redemption. It's God's purpose to reclaim 
the people that he chose to salvation to redeem them. And so the Holy Spirit works in them and effectually calls them to come to Christ. He enables us to see ourselves in hopelessness and that we are depraved and then shining the spotlight, as it were, on Christ. He illuminates the Savior to answer, to be the answer to our hopelessness. So we come to Christ when the Holy Spirit works secretly to bring us to spiritual life. We come out of the darkness of spiritual death and into the light of understanding. Now, taking that and building on the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate Christ, we come to the fourth illumination that I want to speak to you about this evening or this afternoon. Number four is the illuminated man, and that is our life in Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us from darkness to light is to create a new creature that is made in the image of Christ and is returned to the original purpose that we were made, and that is to glorify God. Our lives are not saved just so we can go to heaven. And I think primarily not to get us to heaven. Heaven is just the inevitable consequence of the primary purpose. And so when we are illuminated, what we do is we also shine the light on Christ. You do that in your individual life as you're sanctified by the Spirit. And the difference in you when you become a Christian and you're sanctified is not to hold you up as some great paragon of virtue to be admired by the world because you'll very soon find out that the world does not admire you because you are a Christian. They don't admire you because you're consecrated. No, it's only... As you do what the world does, as you get involved in their philanthropy, you get involved in their humanitarian causes, or probably even more today, if you can just get yourself involved in fighting climate change, then the world will applaud you. But you talk about Christ, if your primary purpose is to, is to save souls, that's the worst work to them because that means humiliation. That means putting yourself down, putting yourself below, pushing self down. And that's the worst thing in this country today, and that is to devalue self. The world's never into humiliation. Humiliation. But that's what we're saved to do. We're witnesses of Christ because the salvation of the soul is that repurposing of another life to the glory of God. So ultimately, heaven then will be populated with those who only and ever bow and worship the Lamb of God. And that is the purpose of your salvation. Well, the amazing transformation of the apostles in the New Testament when Christ ascended is, to te is a testament to lives that were reversed from self-consideration to Christ's illumination. Now let's think for just a moment about the ignorance of the apostles while they walked with Christ. They didn't very much understand what it was all about, what Christ, uh, the things that Christ told them, especially when he spoke about his death and the coming kingdom. And you remember in, in, in his teachings that the focus was always on them, not on the one who did countless miracles, not this one who does the grade A type that charlatans never do. And so we find them always arguing among themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So while Jesus, who is the greatest living example of humility in divesting himself of all his prestige, while he's doing that, they're trying to gain more prestige. 
And so we find them in the scriptures jockeying for higher positions in Christ's kingdom. Now there were lessons that they didn't learn until he was he had been crucified. There are lessons that they didn't learn even when they saw Christ gird himself with a towel and bend and wash their dirty feet because just a few hours later they aren't tuned in enough to watch and pray with him in the garden. And so they're thinking about how sleepy they are, how tired they are. At the same time, he's agonizing over going to the cross to die for their sins. But then we see how the apostles change after Christ died. We see how all of that changes after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is sent to guide them into all truth. Peter preached his message on Pentecost and he delivered this scathing message of guilt. And then he offered them forgiveness from sin and salvation in Christ. And from that point we see the apostles as illuminated men who aren't thinking of self anymore. The focus has become entirely Christ and how they would reach others with this message and how they would do that without fear of reprisal upon their persons. Now before they wouldn't risk doing that because of fear... But now there's boldness that takes over in their personal lives. And their lives are no longer the focus. It is Christ. And might I remind you that we are all living post-Pentecost. And every believer today lives in the time of the Spirit's fullness of the revelatory work of Jesus Christ. And so we can't act like pre-Pentecostal disciples in our timidity to take a stand for Christ. So... We see Christ better than that. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would lead them and consequently us into all truth. And all truth is God's truth and thus we live in the truth that we must always shine the light on Christ. Now looking at these men, who do we think demonstrated a more remarkable change than Paul? He was Saul of Tarsus. I make a comment concerning that. You know, some people say, well, God took Paul and changed him from, from Paul, from Saul. He took Saul and changed him from Saul to Paul. That's not exactly accurate. His name was still Saul after he was saved. One is just referring to the Roman name and one to the Hebrew name. But, but he, becomes, uh, he becomes Paul the Apostle uh, when before he was a persecutor of the church and of Christ. I remember on the road to Damascus, uh, Jesus uh, appeared to him in this brilliant light and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as far as Paul was concerned, uh, Jesus was dead and what he did to this Christian sect had nothing any longer to do with that person named Jesus. Well, is there anyone whose life was more radically repurposed than Paul? Uh, Paul was... Uh, a persecutor of the church. That's his occupation. He had letters from the chief priests, from the scribes, from the leaders of uh, Judaism to track down Christians and to take them to prison and kill them if necessary. That's his employment. That's his purpose. But when he was saved, things changed. Then his life was immediately in peril. Seems that everywhere that he went, he was just two steps from death. Somebody somewhere is always trying to catch him and kill him with a sword or with a stone. And yet, isn't it Paul who became the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ? And who is it that said that Christ is wisdom and knowledge and redemption? And who was it that declared that his life was enduring all things that God's elect would obtain their salvation and all that he did is for the glory of God? 
And then we think of this person whose whole life was wrapped up in his heritage of, of Judaism. I mean, he's the very typical Jew that made his boast of the law. He's a proud Pharisee of the strictest sect, trained at the feet of the great rabbi Gamaliel. And no doubt that added to his personal prestige. But how did he consider all of that after he was enlightened? He considered all of that as filthy rags. There was no gain in it because there was nothing in it for Christ. All of that was for self. The difference? Enlightenment. He was an illuminated man so that his life was to be lived for Christ. He writes in Philippians chapter 3, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Then in verse 14, uh, chapter 3, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In Paul's epistles, you always find him shining the light on Christ. Who he was in Christ governed his entire ministry. Now, I, I've tried to emphasize that in our, in our doctrinal teachings, that is, that we are a teaching church, we pay very close attention to doctrine because our doctrine is to reveal Christ. Every doctrine leads us back to Christ. In Romans, Paul expounded the doctrine of justification and that of God's absolute sovereignty. What does he do? Well, he takes away the light that everybody wants to shine on self, the one that says, oh, well, I can be justified by all the good things that I do. Look at me, what I can do. And Paul shuts out that false light. He turns that one on, off, and he says, we are only justified by faith in who? Jesus Christ. And then he takes away that false light of human will, of determinative of salvation. And he says, no, it's not of him who wills. It's not of him that runs. It is not of that man's activity. It's God who shows mercy. And God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will reject, as he did Esau, those he wills to reject. And who gets the credit for it all? Who are we to focus on? Well, the answer, according to the Apostle Paul, is God through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the answer is, let the light in the oil of the lampstand shine on it and in all the other articles that speak of the perfections of Christ. And so going back to the doctrines, that's what all of them do. They always lead us back to Christ. So when we talk about election or predestination or effectual calling, justification, sanctification, glorification, heaven, hell, the church, it all leads back to Christ. Every doctrine is connected to him and his work on behalf of fallen sinners. So we are a teaching church first and foremost because we want you to see Christ. That will be our emphasis. You already know all of my complaints about churches that are feel good, the ones that want to meet everybody's felt needs. And you know how I feel about entertainment in the place of solid Bible exposition. And you know how I feel about the good old boy network that's 
afraid to capitulate to the consequences of good doctrine because that destroys the relationship to the good old boy network. And what's all that for? All of that's for the glory of people, not the glory of Christ. If that was Christ's glory, then these are men that would willingly forsake all the world's advancement to see only Christ. And if that meant they had to leave the big church for and all the security that you have there to labor in a small place and to go work a job, they would be preachers that are willing to do it because the focus is Christ, not them. Well, you can go through Paul's epistles and you can find him in Galatians speaking of how we are delivered from the law through Christ. But we find that many of our Baptist fellows want to impose more laws, not free us from them. Why? Well, I kind of pointed that out in your bulletin article this morning. Law is for control. If a preacher can convict you, or convince you rather, to obey his, his standards, he controls you. And he maintains power. Is that for Christ? I would say hardly. That's for the man. That's for empire building. The church becomes the pastor's empire that promotes him. But we see Paul in his writings, uh, for instance in Ephesians, where he lightens up Christ through the doctrine of the church. He says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And who's magnified in that scenario? Is the intent to magnify the church? Well, no. The intent is to magnify that sacrifice, that selfless sacrifice that Christ made for the church in his deep love. In Colossians, Paul illuminates Christ in the Godhead. The fullness of the Godhead is in Christ, is what he says. And what greater illumination is there than to see Christ as the highest, eternal, creator God? You see what I'm saying? An illuminated man is God's instrument of illuminating Christ. It never terminates in the man. It never terminates in us. It always points upward to Christ. And thus we find the very same thing in the writings of Peter. We see it with John. We see it with Jude. And I just picked out some examples of how they shine the light on Christ. From Peter, we're all familiar with the verse in chapter 1 that says that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. But does Peter have other things to say about him? Oh, sure he does. First Peter 2 verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. In 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. And then listen to this. You remember Peter, you know, he, Peter was the one who was so afraid when Christ was uh, taken to trial and stood back there and three times denied Christ that he knew him. But do we find Peter changed? Do we find a new unflinching attitude in him to take all the pain and suffering necessary to illuminate Christ? We do. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. Then he says in verse 16, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. You see the apostles in their change of life. Who is primary to them? Is preserving the integrity of personal injury the major pursuit? 
No, what they teach us to do is to take all. Take everything that comes against us for the glory of God and then praise God for all the sufferings that we take. Take all of it gladly. Consider that every trial that you face for Christ is a way of illuminating your hope in Him. Now, of course, we can go on to John and we see how John and his epistles focus on this illumination, the illuminating love of Jesus Christ. We're shining the light on Christ who is the God of love. And we wonder how, when we get to the revelation that John writes things like this, he says, I, John, your companion in tribulation, was in the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He writes that, and how does he write that? As if it's just a common thing for people to go through and not even mention what is most likely true by historical accounts that John was likely boiled in oil and left disfigured, banished to this rocky island of Patmos. How does he go on from there? He doesn't speak of that at all. He speaks only of the majesty of Christ. And here is John. He is only just one of Christ's unprofitable servants. And so I think you get a picture of what the illuminated man is. He is the one whose life is wholly consumed with Christ. And he only desires one thing. And that's to get better at his job of revealing Christ. Now let me show you. Uh, another aspect and another way of the burning of oil we talked about it last week the burning of oil and how the Holy Spirit uses people uses men illuminated men to show Christ well, one of the priest's jobs was always to keep the individual lamps of the candlestick candlestick burning now remember there are seven of these that are on this lampstand uh, there are seven of them that uh, relate to the seven perfections of the Spirit that we find in Isaiah 11, verse 2. And on each of these candlesticks at the end of the branch, there's a little depression. And in that little bowl or depression of the lampstand, there is oil and there is a wick. The oil doesn't burn without the wick. Well, I think we've learned typology in Scripture is a very interesting thing. And here we see the type of a Christian, the Christian is the wick that allows the oil to burn. The wick is human instrumentation that God uses to burn the fuel that illuminates Christ. Now God shows Christ in many ways, but one of the most effective ways he does is to have people that have experienced the grace of God in their own lives tell others about him. Now, this is so interesting because in the use of types, we have all these articles in the tabernacle. We've got this lampstand, we've got the tables, and there's altars, there's oil, there's curtains, there's boards. All of these things are mentioned. And yet, when there is a type of you and me in the tabernacle, we find no mention of it. There has to be a wick in the oil, but there's no mention of of the wick. I mean, where is it there except by inference? And I think that serves up the point that we've made about the apostles who stopped thinking about self and thought only of Christ and what they never did was to applaud their accomplishments. So they are content in God's economy to be the unmentioned little wicks. We think about how different it is in ostentatious Christianity when people want to shine the light on self. When you have preachers uh, that love the applause of the people. I mean, can you imagine that people would applaud preachers? 
That's like going into the tabernacle past all the beautiful golden articles to praise those burned blackened wicks that are in the oil. These, these are just beer men, just sinful men. And they're there because of what Christ did for them and yet they're so content to let everybody pass by Christ to see them. But regardless of that self-promotion, it's still true. There is a wick there, and the wick is necessary for light. Paul said that some preach Christ out of envy and strife. Now, he meant envy of him and at his expense, but he said, that's okay. That's all right. If somebody gets saved, I'm willing to bear their indignation for Christ. So there is this wick then, and the priest goes in to, to trim the wicks to keep the light burning. In these past months, uh, I've done a lot of wick trimming. Uh, since I've gone to cooking, I tend to burn a lot of things. And uh, that produces these terrible odors in the house. And so I figured, well, the best way to get rid of those odors is to buy scented candles. So we have these scented candles uh, all around the house, primarily because I burn things. And uh, so, the, so they're burning to get rid of the odors, but I, I, I found out, you know, that's the best way to keep the odor down. And so I have to trim the wicks because you get that little stubble of the wick that sticks up and it gets blackened. And then when it gets too big, then the smoke that comes from the candle is a black smoke. And then it ends up blackening the candle jar. And then the more blackened the candle jar is, the less light shines. And so you have to go and trim the wick. You cut off the bad part and then there is no black and so the light shines brighter. Well, I, I was thinking about that and we can take that and we can compare it to sanctification. We may have this desire in our hearts to shine brightly for Christ, but the truth is that over time, sin accumulates and we've got to cut that off and get rid of it. Now, it's much more effective if we do that as a daily thing rather than wait a long time, wait until there gets smoke all over the jar. And so this is what the priest would have to do as he went in. He would have to trim those wicks. He doesn't let them uh, get too, too far burnt until he trims them. So it's his job to keep that wick fresh and keep the light burning brightly. And that's what we do when we humbly bow before God every day. We confess our sins and we ask the Lord to cleanse us from them. Every sin blackens the jar so that Christ isn't clearly seen. Another thing I, I learned is that the candle jar can get so bad from neglect that it's not worth trying to clean it up anymore. I had one of these that I put into my office and I just never did anything with the wick and I just kept watching that thing and watching it. The smoke get, kept getting blacker and blacker. Finally, the jar was so black, I said, well, I got to do something with that. So I took it out and I started to clean up the jar and suddenly I find it's all over my hands, it's all over my clothes, it's on the floor, everything's everywhere. So I said, that's not worth it. Just throw the thing away and go get another one. And that's where our analogy stops because God never does that to us. We can get blackened with sin, but then when we come and repent of our sins, he never throws us away. He's always faithful and just to forgive us. He cleanses us from our sins. He takes all of that away from us. And so we become useful for him again. Now let me show you something interesting that Paul said. He was discussing the race that he runs for Christ. And this is just another one of his metaphors of the Christian life. And so he speaks of running this race to obtain the prize. And how does he do that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 and 27... 
He says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You see that last verse? It's necessary for him to beat his body into subjection so that sin is not so bad in him that he becomes useless for the cause of Christ. That's what he means by a castaway. Now, let's just take that and transfer it to our metaphor of the candle jar. Sin can blacken you to the point that your testimony is ruined and then God can't use you anymore. Well, I just said God doesn't throw you away. But what God has to do sometimes is to move you over into some other service because you're no good in front of people anymore. You understand what I'm saying? We've seen this happen to preachers with immoral scandals. Men give in to their weaknesses and then when that happens, they, they need to be removed from the ministry and set aside. Well, the question is, can they be restored? The answer is yes. But not the pulpit ministry. Not back to being pastors of churches. Now they're no longer qualified for the pulpit. Why? Well, because God forgives. He certainly does. But people don't always. And people don't forget. So that sin may be forgiven, but you live with the consequences of it. Consequences are grave. And that is the reason that we are warned to stop at the temptation. Don't go into the sin. Go no further because you can be tarnished and you lose that illumination that you have for Christ. Trimming the wick many times is not pleasant. Most of the time it's not. Sometimes it's a very painful process. Now, I spoke a moment ago about you know these egomaniac preachers who want to steal the glory of Christ. They want the wick to become prominent, not the candlestick. And you think, well, is that, is that a common thing to happen? I mean, uh, here you have preachers that, that stand in pulpits in front of people. Is it possible that preachers get too big for their britches? And they think, I'm the guy, and I'm in charge, you look to me. Does that happen? Well, of course it does. Did it happen to the Apostle Paul? Was there any danger of Paul getting too big for his britches and, and then trying to steal the glory of Christ? Well, we wouldn't think that that would happen. And, and I think it never did because God protected him. Uh, as an example, you think, how would Paul preach to Gentiles about overcoming their proclivity to sexual sins if just one time that Paul gave into it? Then how would he be able to say, well, there's the Holy Spirit living in you and the Holy Spirit will stop you from doing that. You have the power in you. And here we have Paul himself involved in that sin. Was that Paul's problem? Well, I don't think so because I believe the Lord protected him from that. I mean, God wouldn't have been able to use him as the mighty man that he did if he'd stumbled in that way. So I think that God protected him from that sin. But that's not to say that there weren't other things that, that caused Paul, may have caused Paul to think too much of himself. Now, this is strange, but the Lord trimmed his wick in a peculiar way. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I hope you recognize this as Paul telling the story about how he had a vision of the Lord in glory. 
He wasn't quite sure how that happened. He says, was that in the body? Was that out of the body? I'm not sure. But whichever, there was something that happened to Paul that no Christian has experienced. Certainly doesn't happen today, no matter how many crazy books you read about it. People have not, are not transported into heaven. And so in, in verse number 4 of chapter 12, he talks about how he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, third heaven, that's not talking about the atmosphere of a high mountain. It's not the moon and the stars. But when he speaks of the third heaven, he speaks of the place where God dwells. He's talking about the place that God has prepared for a home for those uh, who believe in him, for people after this life. Now, Paul was enabled to see things that the human mind can't comprehend, and so he was unable to describe anything about it. Now, I'm, I'm sure that under some circumstances, Paul might have liked to try to put that into his own words, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Maybe Paul would think he had a better idea and, oh, this would surely convince people uh, of Christ and convince them of the truth of the message if I could just tell them about this fantastic story about going to heaven and this super out-of-body experience about going to heaven. Paul wouldn't write about it. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him write about it. I want you to notice the reason Paul didn't do it. That's in verse number 6. For though I would desire to glory... I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seemeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. So here is the reason Paul wouldn't speak of it. He says, I don't want this to happen, that somebody thinks of me greater than he does of Jesus Christ. That he thinks something too great about me when he hears about me. If Paul had spoken of it, people would look at him and they'd say, Hey, there goes that guy that had this fantastic experience. He went to heaven. So let's follow him. Let's make him uh, the connection that we have to God. And so you see, through that, Paul would get puffed up and Paul would stick his thumbs in his vest and say, Look at me. And now the story becomes about him rather than Christ. Oh, I think that's what happens in all these books that people write, isn't it? Uh, you know, the, the Christian bookstores, thank, thank the Lord, uh, they started just not, we're not going to put those. Lifeway, if you remember Lifeway, said we're not going to put those books in our store anymore. Thank God for that. Because the focus becomes people, not Jesus Christ. Well, we go on to verse number 7, and we see how that God was determined not to let Paul get out of hand. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. Now there is a tough thing for Paul. God sent him some sort of affliction, some sort of goad that kept sticking Paul every time that he thought that he was more, that he deserved, every time that he thinks more of himself. What does God do? God trims his wick. Well, Paul wasn't happy about it necessarily. He wanted to get rid of it. But God said, no, my grace is enough to get you through this. Paul, you will be more useful to me if people see you as a weak man that's made strong by me. And so how does he conclude? Verse number 10. Therefore, I take pleasures in my infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now that circles us all the way back to the beginning. 
Paul and the apostle took all these personal affronts. They take all the persecutions. They take all physical distresses necessary that only Christ will be seen. When we are weak in self, we are strong in Christ. That's when we begin to illuminate him. Recognize who you are and who he is. So that's what I want you to see in this final message on the lampstand. It's the illuminated man. For me to live is Christ. That's the illuminated man. And so we're saved for this purpose. That the light of Christ will shine above all other lights. That all dark ways will be abandoned for this brilliant light of Christ. So the question is, and what will lead us into the truth of this, is who is worth more? Who is worth more? Is it you or is it Christ? And I think the candlestick answers it. It shines brightly to show all the perfections of Christ and the matchless worth of the Savior who died to save us from our sins. Our purpose is to illuminate him, never ourselves. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for Jesus Christ. This is what we want to do. We want to always shine the light on him. Lord, shining that light on us reveals only one thing. Sinfulness, rottenness, um, no good in us. Only by what we are in Jesus Christ do we have anything to boast. Only in Christ. Lord, that helps us to see that he's done it all. He is all. All glory belongs to him. And so help us, Lord, as your people to be illuminating people, shining the light of the gospel on Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.